on Main Street, the podcast about the history of the movies. My name is Alan. Last episode was about the growth of vaudeville. This time, we'll look at one vaudeville house and how it helped bring about America's passion for the movies. As I've mentioned, the projectors came about due to the public's disappointment over the kinetoscope. While it was the first movie viewing machine that the public saw, It was also a peephole machine, and for some reason that did not impress people. Thanks to the phonograph and the electric light bulb, the public had expectations that Edison could deliver great things. That may be the reason why the public first placed their faith in his peephole machine, but the novelty didn't produce that sense of cultural amazement that the public felt about the light bulb or the phonograph. Surprisingly, It's that underwhelming sense of disappointment that actually makes the kinetoscope so important to film history. I've mentioned at least a few times why Edison chose to make the console peephole machine rather than a projector, or more accurately, why I think Edison did it. So now the question is, why did the kinetoscope fail? Well, it didn't fail at first. And in 1894, quite a number of people bought the expensive machines. Even at the beginning of 1895, which was the beginning of the second year of sales, the sales were good, but they soon started to slump. And though the sales were starting to tank, the company probably couldn't see how badly things were going to fall off by the end of the year. So first of all, The economic problems that America was experiencing at that time probably had a lot to do with the failure of the kinetoscope, but that failure probably had accompanying reasons. One was the uncomfortableness of viewing the film clips. This was not an era of ergonomic design. People didn't build things to adjust them to fit people's comfort. We adjusted our bodies to fit the machines. Another reason for its failure that I've occasionally come across in film histories is that people prefer to experience this kind of entertainment in public rather than in private. I'm kind of split on this issue. When you read the reviews and what the reporters say about the exhibitions held with the projectors, you do get a sense of the public's amazement. At the same time, over the recent decades, We've been very willing to experience movie watching alone. It's possible that we can't understand this experience because we've changed so much. It does seem that people do experience things differently when they're alone than when they're in a crowd. Back then, we bonded at public gatherings such as parades, sporting events, religious services, political meetings, circuses, lectures, panorama displays, benevolent organization meetings, amusement park entertainment, theaters, vaudeville, Chautauqua tent productions, and on and on, even magic lantern shows. Now we hide ourselves. 
We avoid our neighbors, especially if they think or look differently from us. We do everything privately, check our emails, communicate with people, watch television shows and movies. And what we do participate in publicly, we do with those who think like us. Heck, we can't even get along with others or try to find common ground on Facebook, so it's really hard for us to understand how our former culture could be so friendly in public or how they could be so willing to share their laughter and sorrow with others. But this may also explain why this generation's films seem so grim. Joy is something we can share with others, but pain is something we'd rather experience alone. And that includes the movies. One thing that I've wondered concerning the failure of the kinetoscope is the films themselves. From the day they were projected in Paris, Louis Lumiere's remarkably personal film clips drew more attention than did the vaudeville performers that Edison's staff filmed. Would Edison's kinetoscope have been better received if instead of showing professional dancers and performers, he had shown something as personal as the film clip of his family eating lunch? It's obvious that the Lumiere's film clips filled more of an emotional need than did Edison's parade of vaudeville performers. Still, it's really hard to know. I suppose that it was natural that both Thomas Edison and the Lumiere brothers in France were interested in only one thing, selling machines. The difference between them was that Edison was really not that interested in making his personal life public while the Lumieres had a lot less in the way of public expectations placed upon them. At the same time, Edison was coming from a position that was close to financial desperation due to the economic downturn, and he preferred to make reliable money from the kinetoscope. The Lumieres, on the other hand, could afford to develop a bit of a vanity project and make projectors and movies that were personal to them. The problem was that, despite the Depression, there were still people who were nowhere near as successful as was Edison, and they too grasped the benefits of a projector. Eventually, this point of view meant that the real profit would be not in selling hardware, which meant selling projectors, but in selling or renting software, which is the movies. This would eventually become known as box office. No one refused to see this market as blindly as did Edison. In early 1895, the mining project was dying, with a lot of money having come out of Edison's pocket. At the same time, Raff and Gammon were hearing from their customers about the kinetoscope business falling off, so they started to lobby Edison about making a projector. At first, he refused. Instead, he released a new kinetoscope that included sound. He had not been able to create dependable synchronization, so instead he provided independent sound that accompanied the film clip. That could be background noise, narration, or musical accompaniment. While Raff and Gammon continued to pester Edison about the projector, kinetoscope sales kept dropping and they resorted to asking their film clip manager, Alfred Clark, to make a series of movies. 
The only one currently existing is The Execution of Mary, Queen of Scots. The film clip of Mary is shot at a distance, as if it were on the stage. Robert Tomei, dressed as Mary, is led to a bench where he is laid down and then his head is chopped off. Of course, this was done by stopping the camera, replacing Tomei with a same-dress dummy, and then, once the camera was started, whack. Any intermediate darkness caused by the stopping of the camera could just be cut out, and the two pieces of film spliced together. This is considered the first stop-motion film, and possibly the first film edit. It would have a great influence on people like Georges Méliès, Albert Smith, and J. Stuart Blackton. All three had spent some time working as stage performers, especially in magic. The execution of Mary and the rest of these various films were only moderately successful, and unfortunately, kinetoscope sales kept falling. It seems to have been around the summer of 1895 that Edison finally relented and had Charles Kaiser work on the projector project. Kaiser was one of a number of men who had worked with Dixon on the kinetoscope. He lived in the East Orange neighborhood and had a passing knowledge of both the proto-movie camera and the proto-projector. But rather than working on it at the Edison facility, Edison sent him over to Manhattan to work on the project under the eyes of Raff and Gammon. More than anything, this reflects how little Edison still thought of the projector idea. This decision was very similar to another decision that Edison had made, to send Dixon to work at the manufacturing plant. It's very possible that this had something to do with Edison's growing inability to meet payroll. And it's also possible that Raff and Gammon, and not Edison, were paying for Kaiser's work. What is known is that Kaiser worked very slowly. Norman Raff even complained to Edison, who agreed with him. But like all R&D men, Edison figured that Kaiser would eventually get it right. So as the years slowly wound down and the economy continued to wallow in a financial bog, Raff and Gammon considered liquidating their company. That would have killed Edison's major supplier of kinetoscopes to the American market, and he might not even have cared. In early December of 1895, Thomas Armat sent a telegram to the kinetoscope company about his projector, known as the Fantascope. He even offered to pay for their trip. In a way, a person could ask, what took them so long? The only contacts that Armat had made in the moving picture biz were Raff and Gammon salesmen. These men were aware of Armat and Jenkins' progress when they met at the Cotton States Exposition in early autumn. Now Raff and Gammon were both complaining about a need for a projector. Why didn't one of these salesmen let the company know about the Fantascope? Sheesh. When Frank Gammon visited Armat at his real estate office in Washington, D.C., he had his doubts about the viability of the Fantascope and said so. Still, Armat pulled out the old clattering machine and played some moving images for Gammon, who was surprised beyond belief. So at what 
point did the two men discuss the situation with Armat's renegade partner, Charles Jenkins? He had taken off with what was essentially the same machine and started courting the prestigious Franklin Institute in order to get recognition for his genius. He even filed a patent on the machine, even though the patent contradicted the first patent that he and Armat had filed in late summer on that same machine. In the spring of 1896, Raff and Gammon were growing concerned over that second projector that Jenkins had. There were rumors that Jenkins was going to open a Fantascope parlor in Manhattan, and the group was worried it would interfere with their ability to sell the territorial rights to the machine. Finally, Armand was asked to get the machine back, somehow, even if it meant paying out good money. Armand filed a suit to reclaim the machine, and Jenkins turned it over. Raff and Gammon would spend a good month negotiating with both Armat and Gilmore and later with Edison over the manufacturing and marketing of the Fantascope, and Armat would be asked to rename the machine. He was given a long list of Grecified and Romanified scientifically marketable names, and he chose Vitascope. Supposedly, this renaming was their attempt to avoid using Fantascope, which was actually a name created by Jenkins. Much of this redefining of the Fantascope brand was conceived by Raff and Gammon, not Armat, Gilmore, or Edison. Both Raff and Gammon were deeply concerned about their relationship with Edison and attempted to do everything they could to guarantee that production would be carried out by Edison's manufacturing company. They stayed in contact with Gilmore, and make great attempts to give the public the impression that the machine was an Edison creation. Even before the contracts were written, word was leaking out about Edison's new projector, and men with large amounts of money were looking for a surefire money winner in a bad economy. And at the same time, Armat was still doing a little tweaking. Not long after Jenkins had abandoned his post at the Cotton States Exposition, a fire had broken out along the midway and had badly damaged their setup. We could probably assume that most of the damage involved the set they built, including the two darkened exhibition rooms, but there is some hint that the projector was also damaged. Very little is mentioned of repairing the two projectors left in Armat's hands, but it could be assumed that, at the very least, there may have been some smoke damage. And we shouldn't forget that the machine had been acting inconsistently during the exposition. Edison was completely out of the loop when it came to promoting the machine, and this ignorance may have been much of his own doing. He didn't appear at the early PR demonstrations, and it was not until a major demonstration was held at the East Orange plant that Edison finally saw the results of the work. Undoubtedly, he had seen projected images before, such as the ones that Dixon had made a few years earlier, but Edison seemed determined to stay away from the machines in general, and the vitoscope in particular. Finally, in early April of 1896, the Vitascope was going live at Coster and Biles' vaudeville house in Manhattan. 
Some people might be curious as to why these first projectors went into vaudeville houses, or more particularly, why the Edison people chose a vaudeville house as opposed to a theater or an amusement park. But that perfectly logical view just might be backwards. It just might be that it wasn't that the projector was going into a vaudeville house, but that it was going into Coster and Biles. This was the same entertainment establishment that had provided most of the performers that appeared in the kinetoscope films. Because Dixon had developed a close relationship with Coster and Biles, the vitoscope first appeared there. When the other machines followed, they too used vaudeville houses to show their moving pictures at work. Al Bile and John Coster had established their theater back in the 1870s when they took over the former minstrel hall known as Bryant's Opera House and started introducing European performers to America. By 1893, they had moved their business up Broadway to 34th Street when they took over the Manhattan Opera House, formerly run by Oscar Hammerstein. For a short time, the threesome ran Coster and Biles, but Hammerstein soon sold out, and in 1895, John Coster died, leaving the management of the company to Al Bile. European acts were their specialty. Just a few months before the vitoscope appeared, Bile had Loey Fuller performing there. Even though she was a Chicagoan, she was now perceived as something European. Prior to Edison and Armat's appearance, Ms. Fuller had made a big impression, and in April, British saloon singer Albert Chevalier had proven to be a big hit. Between those two acts, Coster and Biles had an outstanding box office during the first half of that year. Chevalier would still be at Coster and Biles on the night Armat projected kinetoscope film clips for the first time. Inside the theater, the large six-story building had marble stairs that led to 16 private boxes, while the $1.50 seats in the orchestra section were upholstered in leather and featured ample places to set your drinks. Unlike standard vaudeville houses, Coster and Biles still served alcohol. A large walkway on the third level spilled out onto a large assortment of tables and chairs meant for socializing and dining, and the opera house was decked out in electric lights, gilding, and blue satin curtains. No matter who was managing the place, it was a struggle to keep the building's financial house in shape. Bile would soon surrender the management of the music hall in three years, and a few years later, the building was purchased in order for it to be demolished, and Macy's department store would soon rise on the wreckage of the music hall. A small crew arrived at Coster and Biles to assemble a projection booth on the third week of April, 1896, and on April 20th, the vaudeville house started to promote Edison's latest marvel. On the 23rd of April, with a small room constructed up on the balcony and a power supply and projector included, Armat arrived to show a series of film clips. Some of the films would have been familiar to kinetoscope fans, while to others they were new. Generally, it's been said that a tinted clip of Annabelle opened the show, and that's quite possible. 
but it's also been reported that The Umbrella Dance, which featured the Lay Sisters, was the first film. They seemed to be another dance act following in the steps of Loey Fuller, only less artistic but more keen towards popular tastes. It's hard to say, as the film doesn't exist anymore. Like the Annabelle film clip, the Umbrella Dance was hand-tinted by people that Raff and Gammon worked with. What was undoubtedly the biggest hit of the night was British filmmaker Robert Paul's film clip of Rough Seas at Dover. Paul had made attempts to trade videos with Edison, and while the great inventor turned Paul down, Paul's film did prove to be quite successful with novice moving picture watchers. It was later said that people in the front row yelled because they feared the waves crashing upon them. None of that was mentioned by the reporters who were there that night. Instead, everyone was simply amazed at the moving images of the shoreline. Interestingly, the company's PR, probably written by the Raff and Gammon staff, all mention Edison's involvement in the project over the past several months. They mention the meetings he attended to observe the projector's work. The New York Herald even suggested that Edison spent over $20,000 on the project and that, at one point, Edison threw the entire project away and started from scratch. It's possible that there may be a little bit of truth in that tangle of PR, but Edison had paid no attention to the working of this machine. All development and improvement was done first by Jenkins and Armat, and later by Armat and people working for Raff and Gammon. It's also possible that Charles Kaiser may also have helped. The only private exhibitions Edison attended was the final one at the lab, in which the press also attended, as well as the premiere at Coster and Biles. There, Edison sat in one of the luxury boxes and made no comment. The truly surprising reaction to the vitascope came from the press. Except for the hand-tinted images of Annabelle Moore, the Lay Sisters, and the Robert Paul clip, there's really nothing about the film clips that's any different from the kinetoscope films. Some of these films had been available for viewing in the kinetoscope for a couple of years. The press knew of the kinetoscope and had many opportunities to view some of these films, and yet, now that it was projected on a screen that made them all life-size, as well as their being viewed by a large audience, the men of the press fell over themselves to praise the mechanical wonder. It was the greatest machine that Edison had yet invented. It was the wonder of the age. It was proclaimed that projected movie images would replace backdrops and theater performances. Its possibilities were unlimited. It gives a person the impression that the way we perceive things is more important than the thing itself. While Armat continued to show moving images in New York, a second premiere was held in Boston, this one handled by Peter Kefaber, who also owned the Vitascope rights to the states of New Jersey, Maryland, and Illinois. The Boston show included images of Herald Square in New York City and what one newspaper called Two Dances by Loey Fuller. That may have been a reference to an Annabelle Moore film clip, although there was an attempt by the Edison people to film Miss Fuller while she was in New York. 
Unfortunately, the black Mariah was too cold for her and a double had to stand in. The Boston exhibition also showed a new clip, The Kiss, which came from the hot new Broadway comedy, The Widow Jones. The film clip itself would soon be a hot property. Shortly after, a third premiere opened in New Haven, Connecticut, followed by Atlantic City, Hartford, Connecticut, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This spreading of premieres was started by Raff and Gammon themselves as they attempted to sell projectors as well as territorial rights to the machines. Unfortunately for them, selling the territories and machines was easier than getting the machines made. It was also at this time that one of the important people in the development of the movies as an art form first appears. His name is Edwin Porter, and at the time he was working as a merchant seaman. Still, he seems to have told a friend of his, by the name of Charles Balsley, about the vitoscope. Balsley and a few others had attempted to purchase the territorial rights to their home state of Pennsylvania, and when they were too late, they tried to get the neighboring state of Ohio. When that fell through, they were finally able to purchase the rights to exhibit in Indiana. But when they got word that California was also open, the group was surprisingly divided on the issue. Still, Balsley purchased California's rights, and the Pennsylvania group eventually joined him. Interestingly, rather than start in Indiana, the group headed out to San Francisco and exhibited there first. In San Francisco, the group discovered that the projector had an imaging problem. That meant they had to buy a new lens. This held up the premiere for a few weeks. At the same time, the San Francisco Examiner was promoting the Latham Brothers machine, the Idoloscope, leaving the Balsley group to worry. At the same time, another competing novelty was Alexander Black's Miss Jerry. I briefly mentioned it a few weeks ago. It was a long series of projected photographs running over two hours long. The speedily changing photographs were used to tell a story and was quite a popular competitor to moving images during this time. Strangely, a similar process is now used to replicate lost silent films, such as Theda Barra's Cleopatra and Lon Chaney's London After Midnight. Due to all these problems, the San Francisco premiere was a bit of a letdown. Rather than using two projectors, which they could rotate back and forth, the Balsley projectionist only used one. That meant a break of many minutes between each film due to real changes. Out east, the exhibitors were using two cameras, allowing for immediate switches to the next film. Another issue seems to be that the San Francisco reporters were much more aware of what was appearing in the kinetoscope than did the New York reporters. This gave the reviews a much more complacent attitude than did the Eastern reviews. By late spring, the vitoscope was spreading everywhere. As Raff and Gammon were selling territories, how quickly a local vaudeville house would exhibit vitoscope films depended upon how quickly someone would purchase a state territory, how quickly someone would purchase your local area, and how quickly Raff and Gammon could get Edison to manufacture the machines. Technically, 
not that many machines were sold, just as Edison had predicted. According to one source, only 50 were sold that year. But a good projectionist could work quite a number of cities. For example, the vitascope was shown in Portland, Maine in the spring. But the projectionist also traveled to other cities in the state, such as Bangor, Lewiston, and Bar Harbor. Because of the territorial sales, the list of cities that saw the vitascope was extensive. This included Ottawa in Ontario, which was undoubtedly shown by the Holland brothers. New England was covered fairly thoroughly from Boston to New Haven and towns in between. The machine was very successful in New Orleans, but I can't find Atlanta mentioned. Maybe that's because it had bombed so badly at the Atlanta Fair the previous year. Many big cities in the Northeast, from Cincinnati to Buffalo, from Philadelphia to Indianapolis, all had successful showings of the vitascope. It played in Kansas City, Topeka, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Dayton, Ohio, and even Coffeyville, Kansas. It played in Hopkinsville, Tennessee, Brooklyn, New York, Waterloo, Iowa, and Los Angeles, where a fire broke out. I'll discuss early fires on a later podcast. Another place the Vitascope played was Missoula, Montana. Thanks to the efforts of Raff and Gammon, the Vitascope did well in 1896, at least when it came to spreading the word about Edison's genius. To be fair, when the Vitascope reached Washington, D.C., one of the local newspapers did spotlight the real efforts of its hometown hero, Thomas Armat, without really mentioning Charles Jenkins. In the eyes of the press, the machine was repeatedly considered the most marvelous of Edison's inventions. Still, its reputation was haunted by the fact that the Lumieres would be projecting their cinematograph that summer, and many of the people who bought territorial rights got burned. Problems with power, mechanics, and even the poorly made film clips left them bitter. In the end, it would be up to Edison to salvage the situation as America was starting to go flicker mad. On the next podcast, we'll watch the Lumieres invade America as well as the rest of the world. In the process, their movie camera projector, known as the cinematograph, will give the world a new word cinema. Thanks for listening.